Welcome, Legionaries, to Legion Cast Episode 8, Hobby Roundtable 2 Electric Boogaloo. Tonight, we've got a plethora of subjects to get into, and joining me is Elden Lord Brandon, our good friend Paul, and my brother Maniple. Take it away, Brandon. Hello, my Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, fellow Elden Lords. And I really appreciate being introduced by my title, even though I'm incredibly late to that party. Welcome to Legion Cast. Hey, better late than never. Never too late to be playing some Elden Ring. It's a good game. And thanks for having me back on, guys. Yes, I'm also happy to be here again, particularly with some of the interesting topics we have tonight. I think we really dig into some interesting information. Yep, Manipole and Paul, it's always a pleasure to have you guys on the episode. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Um, but let's go ahead, let's get things kicked off here. Um, what are we drinking tonight, gents? I'll, I'll start. I am drinking some Shiner Holiday Cheer. It's the holidays. It's time to get in that cheerful mood. And Holiday Cheer is a delicious beer. That's a good one. I haven't seen it up here yet uh, in the Northlands, but I'll keep my eyes open. I've got a bottle of Basil Hayden that I got for Christmas last year, and I'm working on it now. It's artfully aged, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Very smooth. I'm drinking water because I'm a wuss, I guess. I'll do something next time. I, I'm tired Lord. of this I'm tired like of you three, guys roasting me for drinking water. Three episodes in a row that water. you're not drinking. Three Fine. episodes in a row that I will you're not get, drinking. I will get annihilated next time, and you will regret it. If you, you think only my, my etiquette is bad now, it will be terrible when I'm hammered. All right, Paul, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm going with the Churchill Classic, Johnny Walker Red, and a lot of soda. Something to pace me through the day. Gross. <laughs> Wonderful. Anyway, so let's say, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump in here. Um, we got a lot of topics we want to talk about today, but first uh, and most important is that uh, one of the legionnaires out there has sent us an email, and we're going to read it on air here, and we're going to go around, and everybody's going to answer this email, and it's a pretty good one. So this is from. Our good friends, the good ship Chili Dog. And it says, Hail, Legion cast. The Imperial battleship Chili Dog has found itself drifting through a system with three bare planets that have no cover to speak of and have none but the listed inhabitants. On the first planet is Erebus of the Word Bearers. On the second planet is Callus Typhon of the Death Guard. And on the third is the GW40K rules team who keeps rolling out broken-ass codexes without playtesting. Alas, the crew of the Chili Dog laments that they have but one payload of the Life Eater virus to deploy, and a target must be selected. The crew awaits your command. So, thank you, good ship Chili Dog, and we are ready to engage. Uh, let's start here with Warwick. Who are we virus bombing? Got a new Carabas. Get him out of the lore. Yeah, but, but, I, but without you, you him, don't. you wouldn't have any lore. I gotta assume that this is in the era of 40k when Erebus is out of play, and I don't want him to fuck the galaxy a second time. Yeah, I, I, my, my initial response to this was find more virus bombs. First off, blow up Erebus and then reload and blow him up again. Uh, but I don't know. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm torn here. I don't think Typhon gets it for me. First off. He's he's all nurgly. He'll probably just like like the vi- life eater virus, um, because he's gross. 
So um, I'm torn here between Erebus because Erebus uh, and also the GW 40k rules team because you kind of deserve it at times. People, people don't appreciate it. Don't appreciate what you're doing there. But uh, overall, I think I'm, I think I got to go Erebus. Well, GW has long said that they're not a rules company. They're a model company. The rules come second. So I'm not sure how much the 40k rules team, how much blame they have to bear for the, the whole thing. I got to go with Typhon. I think that his whole shtick is gross with the flies that come out of his back. And it's not just the virus, because the virus would, probably he would like that, but it's the firestorm that erupts after you you um, lance it that uh, burns them up to a crisp. But I would like to see that. I, I got to push back on the, they're a model company thing. that That's their shtick, but that is such bullshit. Like, that is just the biggest crock of crap I have ever heard, because without the Warhammer game, they sell a quarter of the models that, that they have. If they were a model company, they would not be putting out codexes and rule sets as frequently as they are now. Their current model right now is the stupid thing called Metal Watch, which is basically what killed Privateer Press. So they're they're walking in their biggest competitor's failed footsteps, and it's gonna bite them in the ass. AP, what's your response on this? Yeah, I mean... It's the Imperium, so it's just whichever planet is closest and then come back with more ships to do the other two, regardless of if the targets are still there or not. And then maybe torch the whole system just to be safe. That sounds very Imperium to me. (laughs) And you know, Chili Dog, you might have to take one for the team here and virus bomb one of those planets, flip a coin, and ram the second one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I, I dig it. I dig it. Anyway, thank thank you for the email. Good ship, chili dog. Uh, we hope that uh, you know the the tides of the warp serve you well. And uh, thanks for listening to Legion Cast. Let's uh, let's jump into our next section here that uh, that we wanted to talk about, which was uh, death comes to Christmas Town. And I'm going to turn this one over to Paul. Yeah, I mean it's uh, that time of the year, you know. Snow flying, people running off the roads, and buying gifts for each other. So, yeah, uh, any ideas on what you guys are going to be doing for the holidays, model-wise, or any gifts you're looking to be getting? Well, you should mention that the four of us did a Christmas exchange. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still working on that, actually. So... Yeah, I guess just to give context for the listeners, uh, the four of us are doing um, a gift exchange. You guys have been doing it for quite a while. I think this is the first year I've participated, although me and uh, Brandon have been exchanging models and stuff over the years. But yeah, we're all just uh, buying a character, uh, customizing and painting it up, and we're all going to be swapping them for Christmas to see what we've done with each other's legions and should be fun. I'm uh, trying to figure out how to do mine. We haven't told each other who's doing who yet. We did it all randomly, so try not to give too much away here. Yeah, what was the name of the app that we used to generate that? I think it's uh, like drawnames.com or something like that. Um, my my in-laws family also does a Secret Santa, and that's the system they use. So that's, that's where I got the idea from. Um, 
And and to me, the the reason that I I love this gift exchange that we do so much is to me, and we're going to get into this more in another section um, of this episode. But uh, there, to, there's no higher gift that you can give to someone than than your art in my, you know, in in this hobby. So I I love seeing. I mean, you guys know what I play. I play Dark Angels. It's black and red. It's not that hard. But seeing what each each of you would do that. Every single one of us here paints that differently. Um, and I love seeing the different ideas you have. Um, and it gives us all the opportunity to kind of break out of what we've been doing as well. Um, whoever has uh, Warwick, you know, plays Ultramarines. Maybe whoever has him doesn't work with blue all that often. Um, that's a, a fun new thing to do. Or the Jade for for Paul's Sons of Horus or the... Uh, teal for Maniple's Alpha Legion. It, it gives you a, a chance to break out and experiment with something that you don't normally do while also getting to put your best foot forward because the model's for someone else. So it's it's really you're not exchanging um, a model that you painted. You're exchanging your, your own effort and willingness to do something for your friend as well. So that's, I enjoy the same aspect of it. And um, you it's maybe it's not so much just painting a model, but putting your own flair on it as well. When you assemble it, maybe you do a kit bash or conversion conversion. So I always think those are a ton of fun. Last year, I got a couple of really awesome models from you guys. So I'm, I'm real looking forward to what happens this year. Yeah. It's looking to be a lot of fun and I can't wait to see uh, what we've all done for each other. It should be really cool. We'll have to find some way to like post it online or something for people to see. Oh, we're opening on episode. That's the next hobby roundtable. Oh, perfect. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so that's what we're kind of working on in that regards. But any other uh, Warhammer related gifts or just tabletop related gifts you guys are looking for or looking to be buying? Yes. I first off, if you have a hobbyist in your in your life, one of the great places to go is just go to a hobby store. Just go to a hobby shop and see what's there a hobby lobby or a hobby town, whatever's in your area, just look around, get a sense of what's there. Sometimes something as simple as a mat for a workplace, like a cutting mat is a really handy gift for a, for a hobbyist or a really nice hobby knife. You know, just the most simple things. If you think, Oh, that would fit on his or her desk. That would be a great little gift. But there've been a few things that I've discovered over the years that I really like and I'll plug a few brands here, so maybe we'll get a sponsorship at some point. But the first one is for my hobby lights. I go with a company called Otlight, O-T-T-L-I-T-E. And Otlight has a really nice, slim design. And I found one in particular that has, it's just a LED light with a, with a battery, so I don't have to plug it in. And it has a nice, firm base that sits right on my hobby table, and I can use it to magnify and light up my projects. And it's only about 20 bucks. So a little desk lamp or a little hobby lamp, great, great plan. But the one that blew me away, I saw on one of my buddy's uh, uh, hobby desks, was a little hobby drill. You guys all have used a pin vise, am I correct? Where you have to hold the thing and then spin it with your fingers and get arthritis. He found something called a wow stick, which is a mini cordless drill, USB rechargeable, multifunction. Low speed, high torque. It's about the size of a magic marker. And 
so about that big, and I ordered one online. And the brand I found on Amazon was a Wow Stick. So if you look up Wow Stick, that will have the little hobby drill. It's got a little button on the top you press, and it makes the drill function. So I don't have to keep using that pin vise with my fingers to make it work. So it's in the mail. I'll give her a full review next time we meet on the next hobby corner. But it's great for pinning pieces together. So I'll go with um, the biggest game changer that I found in like the past two years was one that Brandon showed me. And I was I was curious about it for a while, but I I didn't take the dive until I used Brandon's when I was visiting him a while back. A uh, wet pallet. A wet pallet is super easy to use. It helps you just maintain consistent um, paint uh, viscosity, I want to say, or how thin you... It, it helps you with a really consistent paint thinning technique. And I've been using that. I was painting Ultramarines earlier today. I've been working on my Terminators and my Land Raider. And it, I got through 10 Terminators and my Land Raider in about an hour with my first three coats. And it's because that wet palette is so freaking handy with getting a, a bunch of paint. Like, cause you don't want to do with your old dry palette. You didn't want to do a lot of paint because it might dry out too quick. The wet palette helps you keep a large amount of paint consistently uh, thinned for the right amount of time. So it is, if, if you got somebody out there that doesn't have one yet, the Army Painter one is pretty good. Brandon, I can't remember what brand you have, but I like the uh, Army Painter one that I have, and I got a deal on Amazon that sent me like three extra gel pads and um, like two packets of the the uh, the paper sheets that go on top of that. So I, I really recommend that one. Uh, check them out. Yeah, I have a, I have a Masterson's, I believe, but... Um... When you came down last time, you brought that that Army Painter wet palette, and I got to be honest, I think I like it better. Um, I think it's actually a nicer wet palette for, for specifically for mini mini painting. I will um, say it does not seal well, so um, if you want to, uh, I guess it doesn't. It doesn't like it doesn't click shut. You have like an elastic band you put around it, so that works really well. But if you want to, like, if you got to leave it for a couple of days, I don't really recommend that. But you can theoretically leave moistened paint you know for a day or two in one of these if you haven't sealed well um i i'll shout out a couple of things that uh i come top of mind for good gifts for hobbyists for me the first one is something i've been using for a very long time at this point uh, but cannot understate how freaking great it is and that's a vortex paint mixer um anybody who paints knows that sitting there shaking a pot forever sucks so just sticking it on that vortex paint mixer getting it done in 10 seconds what you couldn't do in five minutes beforehand is great and the yeah, other i got i got one after i saw yours at your house and i, I love it it's great mm -hmm. yeah it's, especially if you're using uh the citadel paints a lot that separate like the whites separate super quickly and some of their metallic paints separate really bad so having those mixers is another game changer yeah the the second thing i want to to call out is something i just recently started using um i picked this up quite a while ago and then it just kind of sat in a drawer and i never touched it but uh, everybody here uses uh citadel plastic glue to some extent correct um, have you guys ever had the nozzle dry out on you for those? You got to take a lighter to them, burn them out, and then you can 
keep going again. Well, I recently had that happen again with my glue, but I was having to burn it every couple of minutes um, while I was trying to build some models. And I was like, this is just ridiculous. I, I need to get these magma dross done. Um, so I broke uh, this out. This is Tamiya Extra Thin Cement. Um, and this comes in, it's first off, it's dirt cheap, especially compared to um, Citadel Plastic Glue. But it actually comes with, you guys can see on camera, I'll just describe it for our listeners, but it's a little brush instead of a nozzle. So you pull it out, you brush the, uh, the plastic glue onto wherever you want it to go, and then it's just like Citadel Plastic Glue. Um, so I wanted to shout that out because I just picked it up and started using it real recently. And I don't think I'll be going back to the Citadel glue anytime soon. I think what I was doing with my Citadel glue was I had a, a piece of really thin braided wire, like telephone wire. And I un, un, unraveled it. I could use one of those to unclog my GW uh, nozzle. So you have to get super thin wire to get down there. And that seemed to work for me. But I see it's very frustrating. When you're sitting there trying to get that last little bit of glue out. And I've used the brush ones before. They are pretty handy. Yeah. yeah. All right, Paul, what about you? What's some uh, some gift ideas for hobbyists that you have? Yeah. So uh, kind of a theme I picked up from everybody is nobody mentioned any models. <laughs> and I think that is something you're going to find a lot when you're shopping for hobbyists is they're going to be buying the models themselves Generally, when you're buying them gifts, unless you know specifically what army they're playing for, they're going to appreciate accessories a lot more. You know, things that maybe they're interested in, but not necessarily willing to walk away from their model budget to buy. So yeah, a lot of the fun little uh, accessories and paints and things that uh, others don't get. Um, another one that I like to shout out if I'm not sure what somebody wants specifically, um, I get them terrain. Everybody appreciates getting terrain and it's universally usable by, you know, anybody. And then you don't have to worry about like, Oh, space Marines. I don't play space Marines, but thanks for the models, <laughs> you know, cause anybody can use the, a building or something. That way we can get away from using Tupperware. Not that there's anything wrong with using Tupperware as terrain, but <laughs> you can definitely up your game with some scatter terrain. Yeah, I think I I personally, I don't like getting people models, um, except for, you know, if we're doing a gift exchange where we specifically say, hey, we're getting everybody a model and we're painting it ourselves, something like that. Um, and even, and the reason for that is, is even, you know, all of us here playing Space Marines, every single one of us is thinking about something different and wanting to run something different. So I've just had too many times where someone has gotten me models as a gift. And I'm really appreciative of that, especially if it's, so, if it's someone who's not in the hobby um, because they went out of their way to walk into possibly a hobby shop full of neck beards, who knows where they got their stuff, but they, they went out to get that because I, it's something I enjoy, but I've had too many of that where I go, this is great, but I'm really not looking to run this unit in my army right now. So it ends up sitting on my shelf for, you know, a year or two. Um, and that just makes me feel kind of bad because it was a gift. Um, and I, I want to break it out and paint it, but I already have 500 things sitting in my pile of shame. 
I kind of do go with, you know, what I'm feeling hot on in the moment because that's how I get things done. So yeah, I, I avoid models. Um, the table, uh, stuff is a good shout. Um, should we, should we talk, should tell a story about, about gifting tables to people? Real quick, um, another thing that I want to suggest for hobbyists is an app that I've been using uh, here recently called Figure Case. It's like three or four bucks on um, Android and iOS, and it lets you categorize and sort all of your models by what state they're in and like... uh, like what what you have, how many of them you have, if they're still in the box, if they're assembled, primed, painted, and based. And then you actually have statistics by like what percentage your army is complete at. And it is one of my favorite apps right now because I've been, it's helped me kind of catalog my whole pile of shame. I'm not going to tell you about that part, but um, it's very handy. Say the name again. It is Figure Case. It's, it's awesome. I think you'll like it. Yeah, it, it's a great app, um, especially if you're organized, uh, which is why it's not a great app for me. Uh, but uh, no, that's that's a good shout for for something to, uh, and it's cheap too. It's like three or four dollars, and it's a good app for for getting that stuff organized. So, on the subject of death comes to Christmas Town, why don't you tell your horror story, Brandon? Oh man. So we, uh, this was, God, this was probably five years ago. Almost, yeah. Like I think that. this is the first year that we met. Yeah. So our, uh, our friendly local games workshop decided to do a, um, it wasn't really like a white elephant Christmas exchange, uh, but it was in that kind of vein where everybody brought something. Uh, but like the, the rules were, you know, you went around the table um, opening things and, uh, you you could steal a gift from someone else and then after they had already opened it. Um, so we're rolling around the table and people are opening gifts and there's this guy there and I can't even remember his name at this point. Um, but he opened the gift and keep in mind a lot of these are models and a lot of them are not expensive models at that because you know, you're not, you're, you're buying it to give it away. Um, so, so people just didn't splurge really for you know, being honest. Um, and this guy opens it and he's got some like of those ages defense line terrain. Uh, it's the box of that. And he is just visibly disappointed which first off, when you're at one of these gift exchanges, if you don't like what you got, put on a freaking happy face because somebody bought that and gave it to you. Uh, it, and just I would have loved that. Me. I love yeah. that Aegis terrain. Yeah, but don't sit there and poo-poo the gift that somebody bought because it's not exactly what you wanted. That's just, that's just poor form. Um, but anyway, so it came around to my turn. And Paul, I don't believe you were able to make it that night. I think you had to work. Yeah, um, no, I was working, so I wasn't there. But I did but buy you had a, gift. a gift in in the pot there. Yeah. So I grab Paul's gift because I I know Paul pretty well, and I know that he's pretty good gift giver of things Warhammer. So I grab his gift and I open it up, and it's that uh, the 
they came out with this several years ago, the Moonbase Klexus uh, box set with the fold-out cardboard table um, and a little bit of terrain in it, which was amazing because at the time I had nothing for a table. And I had been thinking about getting it for a long time, but I was just kind of held out by the fact that I think it was like 80 bucks. And again, nobody really wants to buy terrain. You just kind of want it to appear in your life. <laughs> so I was really excited. Uh, I was going to say just for context. So I showed up like a week before and the guy running the store was like, yeah, we're doing this, you know, white elephant gift exchange. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be there, but you know, I I'll throw something into the pot. It'll make the party more lively if there's stuff on the table. And he's like, yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll set, you know, an extra gift aside and you can come pick it up later. So I was like, cool, what are we looking at? And he's like, anything in the store? And I was like, is there a price limit? And he was like, no, no price limit, just whatever you want to get. And I was like, that's going to go really badly. You do realize that, right? And he was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, we're talking Games Workshop. The prices here range from $10 to, you know, $300. Like, what are we looking at? And he's like, well, you know, some other people have bought some stuff. It'll all be fair. So I grabbed that moon base because it had just come out. And I'm like, well, 80 bucks, you know, that's in terms of Games Workshop stuff, that's right in the middle. So sure, we'll go with that. And turns out I had the most expensive gift and everyone was like fighting over it, apparently. And I was like, ooh, feels bad. That wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of what happened. It was the most expensive gift there. Everybody wasn't fighting over it. What happened was this guy who got this Aegis defense line, so he had reached for it, and then he was like, you know what? Nope, I don't want to do that. And he grabbed the the defense line and opened that. Well, I, I ended up grabbing that, uh, that, that moon base box. And so the, it goes to the next person who is looking at the gifts, and he's like going to pick one. And this guy who had already picked says you should steal that gift pointing at the, the table. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to do that and stole that gift from me. And I was like, you mother don't recommend to someone to take someone else's gift because you're salty about the one that you grabbed. So I ended up, uh, I grabbed one and it was like a space Marine chaplain. I think um, was, was what I ended up getting at the end of that. And you know, that's a good gift, but I was just, I was so irate about this guy convincing someone else to steal my gift because he was upset about his own. I think I wound up with that space ring chaplain when you downsized your space walls. Honestly, I don't even remember what happened to it. I was so mad and I felt so bad about like being visibly unhappy with the, getting that chaplain. But I was like, that was just the dirtiest thing to do to a person. Yeah, that that sounds like some uh, some real BS there. I and that's why I don't like those white elephant gift exchanges. I mu I much prefer these um, secret Santas. I think they're just they're better for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's better in a small group of people you know. Yeah, I think the problem with it was it was just very poorly defined. I, I think the the fact that the price limit had never been set was just the thing that set it off you know again i think the next closest thing was like 30 40 cheaper and so that caused a lot of confusion we'll call it 
But yeah, yeah, if you do that kind of thing, it needs to be with a lot of people who are going into it knowing that it's going to be ridiculous, and you kind of have to have better rules defining it. Yeah, I had um, the the manager at that store. He was uh, he was also a fellow uh, army vet, so he ended up like pulling me out of the store because you know the, the guy who did this was like five foot two, overweight not any and i'm fresh out of the army at this point so he literally pulled me out of the store and was like don't kill him well that is a pretty horrific story right there we all we've all had hobby shop experiences like that i think maniple you and i have talked about these it's a particular kind of gamer called a, a hammer well they can show up in any kind of hobby called a hammerhead and it's basically the guy saying you should play the game like this or you should do your hobby like this. And that's not really how you get people interested. People want to pursue their own interests. But I think that wraps up our Death Comes to Christmas Town section, and we're going to move into Theme Lords. Theme Lords is where we talk about a particular army that comes off the rule set onto the tabletop pretty seamlessly. Um, or we feel like the the rules represent their lore very well. And this can be kind of a tricky one, and I'm going to sound like a tool saying what I'm about to say, but I think that the Horus Heresy Ultramarines did a really good job of making them feel like Ultramarines. They are very utility, they are incredibly flexible, I think they get a lot of uh, they get a lot of pounds per points in that their their basic basic run of the mill stuff functions very well with the stratagems and rule sets that they get. Does that seem kosher to you guys? What do you think? Yeah, can you give an example, like maybe of some synergy between a character and a unit that would give an example of that? Well, they're. Um, uh, their, their stratagem, the... Uh, somebody else vamp real quick. I gotta, I gotta dig out the word. I was gonna say for Ultramarines, I know their advanced tactic where they get to pick a friendly unit within a certain amount and fire on something that's firing on another unit feels very Ultramarine-y. Yeah, and that's that's a super handy one, but I was gonna go with their, uh, their Rite of War, the um, uh, Lectius Logi or whatever it is. You have to have a master signal in your army in addition to whatever HQ units you have, but it gives them um, the relentless charge. It gives them, um, or sorry, no, the retribution strike is what I'm thinking of where they take a hit on their ballistics, but they can hit like a freaking Mack truck. Uh, and they also have like three other ones where they can do like a full march, a return fire, I believe. I need to, read that again but it it really makes it feel like you know they're uh you know they've got a guy basically running the phones um saying like you need to lay down cover fire here you know this unit just got hit really hard over here you need to send in the terminators and it really feels like uh that you know the the communication excellence that uh the ultramarines are famous for so the problem i usually have with running theme armies is that you have to make choices in your army list that are not ideal or not not the strongest in order to get one little benefit like they'll say okay you get this one little benefit 
as long as you agree to take no tanks, no terminators, no last cannons, or something like that. You know, do you feel like that you have to do anything like that in Ultramarines, or are you able to take the better choices along with this benefit you're getting? Yeah, I so I, I really feel like the Ultramarines are flexible enough that 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 right of war applies to basically any unit on the board. So you're not hamstrung by having to take, um, you know, the uh, their Invictus uh, suzerains or uh, like a particular unit of Devastators or something like that. So it, I think it works great for the whole thing. And even like uh, um, the Retribution Strike works on Tactical Marines with bayonets. It's it's uh, really neat to me. I've, I've at the end of this segment, I've got a really good story about themed armies. Um, remind me before we wrap that up. Um. I can talk about a game I just had for 40k. I have been playing Sisters of Battle now for quite a few editions, and most of my army is in pewter, if that tells you anything about how old my sisters are, or at least white metal. And I did try to get a game in against a buddy of mine in another town who plays Imperial Guard. He's got a really tough list with a ton of tanks, a lot of armor, and usually the sisters are pretty good at taking down armor, but they've got to get pretty close. And in the first game I played against him in, you know, recently, I got completely destroyed. He basically tabled my whole army because the sisters do like to do a lot of walking. So he was just shooting me as I was coming across the board. He's using a lot of artillery and mortars. And they, the sisters have a, their one wound, toughness three, uh, humans. They do have armor of contempt and power armor, so that is good, but his shooting was devastating. We played again. I went back and really looked hard at my rule book, looked at my stratagems, looked very hard at which of the very special rules I had to have with my warlord. And the sisters like to kind of layer a lot of effects, like a lot of 40k armies do. You've got to have your characters in the right place. You've got to make sure you've got the right right of war. You've got to make sure you got the right you know, things are going on at the same time, characters and all that stuff in the right place. Once I really sat down, I looked at the army list I'd brought before and said, well, there's a bunch of stuff in here that just doesn't work. I have to take out a few units, bring in a few other ones that really built synergy with my army. And then we had a totally different game. I tabled him. And all I came down to is really switching out, probably taking out three units and bringing in three other ones that were the better fit with my play style. So instead of some arcoflagellants, I brought in some of the, the um, uh, some more dominions, the, the, the fast attack choice with melted guns that all of a sudden just opened up the whole, the whole game for me. So I think, and, and when you're playing the sisters of battle, you really do get the sense like they, they can pull out, pull off miracles. They get miracle dice. The, their character Celestine can die and come back again. And they have a lot of things that allow them to uh, do things that other armies can't do. And that's that's kind of what I found as I'm playing through. Like, I really got the sense like they were all praying, and then the emperor blessed them, and then they won. That's what it felt like to me. So I'd say they did a pretty good job with that army of bringing the theme out. Okay, I'm actually going to go a little bit uh, out of left field here for you guys, and uh, you know you can decide whether or not I'm just off base here, but I'm not going to talk about an army. I'm going to talk about a game uh, that I think nails the theme of Warhammer perfectly. And that's Warhammer fantasy roleplay. We, you know, until recently we were running a campaign of, of that game. Uh, But I was just talking about it with some, some other folks recently. And it made me 
really want to get back in and, and, and play that system again. But I don't think there's anything that really nails how miserable existing in the old world was quite like Warhammer fantasy roleplay does because it's all fun and games until, Oh, you rolled a critical fail and your head got chopped off and you're just dead. Make a new character. It was nice knowing you (laughs) or it's raining. You now have a cold take a minus 10 to all of your abilities because you have a cold. It will last for six days. Enjoy. And Bear in mind, all of these things just can, it's just to, to quote Manipal one time when we were playing, this is just an endless parade of getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah. And the funny thing is that 40K gets all the, the credit for Grimdark, but Warhammer Finisi Roleplay has it in spades and, and, and to an even greater extent because your characters are so pathetic. And I remember some of those campaigns, the NPCs would even make fun of your characters, no matter who they were. And I thought, what kind of game is this? But it really felt like you were the lowest of the low piece of garbage that nobody cared about. And yet you're still doing stuff. It was really interesting. I remember one session we had, uh, you guys were in a bar um, and uh, a fight got started and you guys were like, you know, we're, we're pretty deep into this. We've got a lot of experience into these characters and just these four random villagers just beat the shit out of all of you. And I thought I thought Warwick was going to rage quit. <laughs> yeah, that um, that was pretty frustrating because like you'd think that you could maybe handle yourself in an unarmed scrap, but no, not at all. We got we got wrecked in that deal. But I think I did end up. Uh, no, sorry, our Manipal and I's other brother was in that session, Witch Hunter, and he he knocked a guy out and then I stole his pants. So that kind of made the session for me. And that, that game was so good because there are even rules for like dysentery basically. So Brandon being DM, uh, my, my brother, witch hunter, that's, that's the screen name we'll use for him. Uh, he got the galloping trots and halfway through a fight, the DM could just pick a point where he soils himself and he's got like, three turns to find the loo basically. So it, it is vicious down to dysentery. It's, it's a pretty amazing game. That was hands down the best session we played. And that the, was the funniest one. The, uh, the critical, uh, critical wounds chart on that is like more than a page long. And it has some of the most vicious, brutal stuff on it that you will read on paper. It's awesome. Yeah, that rule system was a lot of fun. I do remember that for some reason I just had incredible luck with that game, though. Like, I couldn't die. Like, I was going out of my way trying to find my death flags and just couldn't get it to happen sometimes. Oh, I was going out of my way trying to kill your character and having a hard time of it. I still remember it was just like, oh, yeah, Paul's joining and... uh, You're going to be like regular town guard. Get ready. This game's really tough. And like two cents... What was it like? Two sessions later, I became a judicial champion, and it was like, "Cool, I just auto pass all of my melee attacks." Like, how does this happening? Yeah, that guy was so broken, like right <laughs> off the bat. It was it was so handy for you. Yeah, yeah, it was but pretty he was crazy. The, he was the first character in our party to die, and he was probably the toughest. Toughest. Yeah, the rest. Well, of us I just remember because like, it was like. Lucky. 
everyone got so gun shy that they were like, all right, I'm going to play very cautiously, very smartly. And I was like, I'm kicking in the door. <laughs> so it was only to, a matter of time, but <laughs> to, to be fair, I also like, I had like a percentile system of who was going to get hit. If you were all standing next to each other. <laughs> and that sucker was like, there was like a 75% chance. It was Paul. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But yeah, yeah, I did like that rule system. It definitely, it does feel very old world. Yeah, and, and as far as theme goes, I, I just, I I know it's not an army, um, and it's not like a specifically Games Workshop product, but it is, it's one of my favorite things as far as nailing the Warhammer themes of like Grimdark. Right. And I think and we're still kind of, of that. we're still kind of boxing in some of these segments. So I think... Um, like rules to tabletop is pretty general in that. Um, uh, so th- I think that works for the segment. So that's, that's a good pick. Paul, what do you got? Um, I was going to say the place where games workshop really focuses on integrating the lore with the game tends to be all the, the boxed games, all the side games, Necromunda, Mordheim, that kind of thing. That's where you get the most flavor. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes down to, it's a smaller game set. So they can focus a lot more on uh, integrating that sort of feel into it. You know, once you get into games where you're running hundreds of models, it's a little harder to get that feel. But they do definitely do it better with some armies and others. I feel like Age of Sigmar does a pretty good job of nailing the general vibe of each faction. Um 40k struggles a little bit more with that, and I think that's more just because 40k is uh, a much older system, so integrating, you know, the past 30 years of writing into an army is probably going to be a pretty steep order to match. But yeah, they definitely have their factions within those. Actually, um, I, I want to push back on you a little bit there. Um, not on the 40k side of things, because I think you're pretty spot on. Uh, but I, and again, I talk about it a lot, but age of Sigmar is, uh, the, that's one of the big praises I've been hearing about the games is, um, all the battle tomes that have come out in the new edition, they really nail the theme of the army while also making them good. Um, which, which has been really fun and refreshing. Like, uh, the, the slaves to darkness book just came out recently, which, I think you guys know I've got a pretty large Slaves to Darkness army that I was augmenting my corn army with. Um, but finally, for the first time in the existence of this game, running wa- the Iron Wall of Chaos, of just Warriors of Chaos, is really good. And it's fun. And it looks cool because those even the old sculpts of those models are awesome. Um, and it just looks awesome having your armored legions march forth to conquer the realms. So I think that it can be done. I guess is what I'm saying. I 40 K hasn't done it very well. I don't think they've done it to an extent. I mean, there are armies that I think fit the theme better. I remember old fifth edition space wolves. I love that everything had counterattack. Um, I thought that really fit in their theme really well. And so they've done it in the past. I just think they need to really figure out how to, how to do it right and take their, take the time. I honestly, I'd be a lot happier if I had to wait longer for a book, knowing that it was a good book when it came out. Yeah, I think we've all had a lot of great input here. Does anyone want to hear my themed army? Well, it wasn't a themed tournament, but this is a horror story that came out 
while I was at a tournament uh, a f- uh, probably more than 10 years ago, a long, long time ago, I played War Machine. Uh, this was probably like six years ago. <clears throat> anyway, I was playing... Uh, my timetable's off. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I was playing Retribution of Syrah at a War Machine tournament in another city, and I went with some guys from my local game club. Now, I was running the... Uh, they were like witch hunter rangers or some shit. They had magic crossbows that ignored line of sight. They were really broken because you could run them up the board any which way. You could shoot through intervening models, any kind of cover, um, any intervening uh, terrain, whatever. They were really handy for that. That is why I quit playing that game because of stuff like that. So it, it gets better. I thought I had a really sick list here. And um, I did really well. I think I won my first two matches. They, that particular army did not do well against hordes. So the hordes armies, I, they, I just couldn't get a handle on them. Anyway, um, I beat my first couple of War Machine matches. And then on my third match, about halfway through, I hear one of the guys from my game club... And Maniple, you'll know who I'm talking about. He's the most infamous man in that game club because he's been kicked out like four times. Oh, Brandon, uh, yeah, Brandon, you'll know too. I know exactly because you're from you're, you're from my hometown as well. Um, in the middle of this match, this guy, uh, let's just call him Fatty. Um, Fatty yells at me. Hey, why aren't you running your retribution this way? And he gestures to the the telekinetic mages with like the big um, like force gauntlets or whatever, and they're cheesy because they can push enemy models around the board. And basically, what he did, he was able to, to push an enemy model off the board, or you know, manipulate them in such a way that um, uh, Fatty's army couldn't really do anything. They, they they were just getting cc'd the whole time. Now. Fatty says, you're a fucking retard because you're not running these things. And that was the last tournament I ever played in. Because the thing I hate, uh, the thing I hate more than losing is being told how to play. What you should try doing is get good. That only works in Elden Ring. We, hey, hey, not everybody here can be an Elden Lord. It's a pretty exclusive club. For, for our listeners who don't understand, I just recently beat Elden Ring, and in all of our discords, I changed my user handle to Elden Lord Brandon. <laughs> yeah, well, you deserve it. You put in the hours, and I had to listen to you scream into the mic a few times. This is fucking bullshit, and then finally quit. Well, I still I, think- I still want to pay you to play Sekiro on stream. Okay. Because I, well, I just think God. that that would be really enjoyable. We'll, we'll consider it when the day comes. Until that time, I think that wraps up our th- uh, theme lord section. Let's move into Fulgrim's Quest. Brandon, take it away. Do you want to t- take a little break here? Or let's, yeah, let's on? grab a break here. Let's uh, do it. And then we, can, right. then we can jump on into uh, Soy Boy's Quest. <laughs>
Welcome back, Legionnaires. Uh, we're going to get started in the, our next section, uh, which we are calling Fulgrim's Quest. Now, we all know that Fulgrim was a great lover of art before he became a great lover of all things just gross and degenerate, and uh, then proceeded to get, can I say, sodomized by a demon? Because that's basically what happened. That's what we're going to go with, sodomized by a demon. All right. Uh, but, uh, you know, in one of our episodes talking about Fulgrim, um, we kind of got into a little bit of a question that I'm going to pose again here now that we have the rest of the group here at the table um, and we have a little more time to talk about it. And that is, is your hobby art? And since, Paul, since you weren't part of this conversation in the last episode when we did this, I'd like to start off with you. So is your hobby art? I think it can be. Um, I think it depends on the approach you're taking. Nowadays, for me, it, it feels less like art. Um, although I think a lot of that is because I'm just rote painting a lot of things. I'm not really pushing the envelope of what I can do a lot. Um, you know, when you're painting... 400 space marines the exact same color in exact same way it certainly doesn't feel that way um but i do try to pick up specific projects like i was working on um uh what's the slanesh guy uh sigvald you know i just bought him on a whim and have just been messing around with like color change paints and trying to you know just do something a little different and in that regard, I would think of that as an art project, you know, where it's separated from the game and I'm looking just to hobby and work on it as an actual, you know, painting project. But my standard armies where I'm just contrasting three colors and a base, uh, I don't view that stuff as art generally. It kind of just depends on your approach. One of the things that I found as I got into the hobby was how many classes I had in grade school and high school on art. We, we, we did have art class. And I don't remember learning a, a whole lot uh, about how to do something nice. I remember talking with a, another person I knew who actually went to college for graphic design and art. At the college he went to, they didn't teach any technique. They would just say, develop your own technique, figure something out, just make something that's interesting. And there wasn't a lot of learning involved. It was just a lot of practice until you develop something that was different from somebody else, which is kind of a modernist understanding of what art is. But when I really got hard into the hobby here with painting, I had to learn about contrast. I had to learn about complementary colors. I had to, going through these old white dwarves, looking at techniques about how to thin your paint, how to dry brush properly, how to highlight, how to bring things out. And I think the, the, the more useful art classes I had were probably my very beginning grade school classes that talked about how colors work together. That's the only thing I've taken from my education that I have actually used in this. But I found how good, if you want to be artistic, you have to have good technique first. You can't just slap a bunch of paint around and hope for the best. You've got to understand how the material works and what colors go together and whatnot. And I think that's, once you learn those basics, then the artistic aspect of it finally opens up. And so you've done your hundred space Marines all the same. Now you get to work on the character where you, all that technique now can can have some freedom and you can explore something different. I'm inclined to agree. I think that 
uh, part of art can be summed up in devotion and um, effort put into a model. I have um, probably 50 Stormcast uh, for Age of Sigmar dudes that are painted to the, the bare minimum. And I have my Star Drake model, which I think is one of the best things I've done. The Star Drake would be art to me. The rest of the army, not so much. I think uh, I think I might actually, to an extent, disagree with all of you here. I think that those 400 Space Marines or those 50 guys who are painted, um, you know, to, to their baseline needs, I think that that is a form of art. Um, I think that you guys are all thinking about it on an individual model scale and where I think of it with these, these baseline guys that, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time on. I'll slap some contrast around, do, you know, do what I need to do, get them done. Uh, But then when the whole army comes together and you're, and I took the time on the characters and the monsters and the tanks and stuff like that for, um, I, I think a lot of times about like when I look at something and this is something I've heard from other painters and stuff is where's my eye drawn to um so honestly when you have 400 space marines on the table my eye is drawn to who's standing in front of them which is that character that you took all that time on and so it's like becoming a background to your to your main piece and i think that that having that background having that well-painted captain in front of your 400 space marines i don't even notice that you know, maybe you didn't do an edge highlight on that sergeant or something like that. Um, so I, I think that it all kind of lends itself to uh, to your greater whole. It's 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 greater than the sum of its parts. I guess is what I'm getting at here. Yeah, I, I'll I can piggyback on that comment because I can still remember the first time I saw a large space marine army, and Brandon, you'll get a kick out of this. It was I think an Imperial Fist army, where it was all like forty guys. Boo, all. hard stop, boo. Hard stop. But I remember thinking to myself, how did he paint that yellow so it looks so good? When you see like yellow done really well in these models, every mod, every hobbyist, true hobbyist will look at that and say, how the heck did he do it? And my first thought wasn't, how come all these Imperial Fists are wearing jump packs? Because they were. I was just amazed at how they were all uniform and they were set up in marching order. That was so cool. I just sat there and stared at them. And I've had the same experience with other armies, but that's the first one I can remember. So I can appreciate the the greater than the sum of its parts comment. Um, the reason I don't think of, I the reason that I didn't initially think of it that way is because I am so haphazard with this hobby. I don't have a fully painted army. The only fully painted army I've ever done is my uh, Legio Osidax tit- Titanic Titanicus army because that's only uh, five models for the maple that I run. Yeah, but um, you know, at the same time, you know, you're when I when I think of like your art um, and what I see, you have been collecting and adding to your same Space Marine chapter for almost fifteen years at this point, and that has changed and refined over time. And I know you still have some of those original models, um, and so looking at you know where you started versus where those are now. And last year I actually painted up a captain for you for that army. And I got to kind of break out some of the new things I'd been learning. I tried some, uh, I tried some directional lighting. Honestly, it didn't really look great. Um, 
but I, I gave it a shot and, uh, but seeing where, where you started with something like that, it, it is the entirety of it. Now, I think personally, specifically for you, Warwick, I think you're too hypercritical of your own work and that's why you can't see it as art. And I think a lot of people are like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that criticism. Um, and thanks for bringing up my space Marines because I actually have um, a squad, a tank, and a dreadnought in my display case of my old stuff. Or Sorry, those are all some of the original models that I painted for my space Marines. I have them in my display case as a constant reminder of kind of this is where I came from. This is where I started the hobby. What are some of the reactions you guys have gotten from other people, particularly normies, who see your stuff for the first time? Oh, my the the one that that floored me that I I almost like I just kind of dropped everything. I went and sat down in a dark room for a while because I I couldn't really understand what I just heard. I had painted the uh, the first um, Primaris captain in the Gravis armor that came in that first box set. I painted that up in my chapter colors. And I showed my buddy's girlfriend, which maybe was a dumb idea, but Robin looks at it and just goes, oh, that's cute, and walks away. And I was like, what? I I spent a couple hours on this, and all I get is, that's cute, walk away. So, you know, dumb idea. Girls aren't into the hobby, guys. Just don't don't even try. Um, a lot of what the, I, I feel often feel the same question from a lot of people, which is, one, how do you hold your hands still? Um, and two, uh, do you wear like magnifying glasses when you paint the stuff? The answer to question number one is I just lean my forearms against my desk. Massive hobby cheat for you there. <laughs> um, and then the answer to number two is no, I don't, but I know people who do. Uh, work, I'll push back on no girls in the hobby because... Um, one of our little nieces has painted a number of models, some orcs and some stormcast. Oh yeah, that's I. Yeah, that's true. And, and I told her that if she starts a painting channel where she just paints one model a week, she could probably pay for college by the time she gets there. Yeah, we should uh, maybe get her some, some more stuff for Christmas. Her mom will love that. Right. What about you, Paul? What's some things some normies have said to you? Yeah, I don't know. I. Uh... I come from a different background. The whole family are artists, and I'm the only one who didn't actually go to art school. So generally, when I'm showing off models, what I get is, that's terrible wet blending. You should work on your art game there. <laughs> you know, or, uh, you, well, actually, color theory would dictate that these colors would match better. Maybe you should try harder. You All right, bring thanks. great dishonor to your family. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm going to uh, Asian family here looking for uh, compliments. That's not uh, that's not a winning strat. <laughs> but no, uh, generally, you know, it's positive. Um, you know, I'm also the guy that will spend weeks painting a single marine, which is also why, much like Warwick, I have no mo armies finished. But the stuff I do have done generally is uh, seen favorably. <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky to have a few friends um, locally that, that do a lot of hobby stuff, a lot of painting. It's great to be able to compare and compare notes on different things. Hey, we've done some, I don't know, uh, work. Did you ever do one of the speed paintings with us? Because no, our little... I, 
I haven't done that yet, but maybe that's something we should do in our um, when we have just like a, a regular hobby night. Because our uh, I, generally, what I play is a lot of board games, and board games do come with typically some minis. And so we would we wanted to get those painted up quick, so we would just everybody would grab a mini, put forty five minutes on the clock, and you paint it as fast as you can. And we gave them some really nice painted minis, and um, those you can be pretty surprising how much you can get done in forty five minutes when you're motivated. It might only be one mini, but if you have four or five guys sitting around the table, you can get a lot done in a couple hours. And then, but the reaction I tend to get is sometimes people ask, well, how much, how much does all this cost? And I don't know if I could put a value on my hobby anymore. It's blown so far out from where I started, but, and the same questions that Brandon gets, how do you, how do you paint these small details? And I just respond that it's technique, you know, you get the right technique and you can paint anything. And then, um, some people are just, um, interested, you know, they, not that many people ask about like, where does, what are these models? Like what game are they for? It's kind of hard to, do, to explain it. Cause you have to go and explain what 40 K is to somebody in five minutes. They don't get it. I just say it's, it's kind of like star Wars and then, Oh, 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 okay. And then that, that's the end of the conversation. Yeah. You know, I, um, I was talking to a guy locally around here who is an incredible painter. Um, like could, wins painting competitions regularly knows all the tricks you know very very talented painter and one thing that he told me that actually really stuck with me and it's actually gotten me to slow down on my painting and, and actually enjoy it a lot more is that uh he said 95 percent of your time of interacting with a model will be putting it together and painting it and then five percent of that time will be it on the tabletop so enjoy that 95 percent of the process um, and that really stuck with me. So is it art? I think it is. But like, there are times where you're just doing workaday stuff. But I think that we've all found a way to express something through these models and through these, the, you know, the, this game that I don't think I would have ever sat down to paint a picture, but I would paint a model. And that's, that's good. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. I, I'm changing my tune from the last discussion we had about this. Um, while I don't consider myself an artist, going back to my Legio Osadax models, I've done seven models total for that army. They're not the best models that I painted. Those are the ones I'm the most proud of because they're they're so cohesive in the vision that I had for them. So I'm, I mean, I've, I've been on the same side of this table from the start here of is it art? Yes. Um, and, and part of that, that we talked about a little bit earlier is that I don't think it's possible to not have your own kind of signature on it. We could all sit down here and I'd actually be interested to do this at some point. We could all sit down and say, paint, paint an ultramarine. And we could all sit down with the same tactical Marine and you would have four different looking Marines. So Paul, we'll, uh, we'll jump to you last. Is it art? Um, yeah, I kind of already, shared my thoughts on it generally but yeah i think uh overall it it would be considered an art form as a hobby um just kind of depends on your approach to it and how you view it did i ever tell you about uh i think i told brandon about it about finger painting frank <laughs> yeah i don't, yeah, you told I don't me think about warwick it, and you need, to, you need to share this story yeah so you know back in the very first place i ever played it was this small store in Idaho 
and we get this guy coming into the store and everyone's calling him finger paint and Frank. And I'm like, what's up with this dude? And they're like, just when he shows up, you know, be nice to him, but you'll know. Uh, so he shows up and he's playing blood angels and apparently he was using like the Walmart, like apple barrel craft paint. And like, basically he was using like shop brushes to paint his models so it was one of those things where, like, it's straight out of the pot, just thick paint globbed on. Like, he's not cleaning his brush, so the white and reds are blending together. Um, and he was called Finger Painting Frank because he left fingerprints all over his models because he wouldn't wait for them to dry. Um, you know, so objectively not the most aesthetically pleasing models, but I'll tell you... There was nobody in that store who loved their army and their paint scheme more than Finger Painting Frank. He was so proud of his army. And he would just walk around, dude, check out this new guy I just painted. And you'd be like, that's great, man. That's awesome. Like, you know, and we had like a, a couple of guys that, you know, kind of like this person Brandon was talking to, you know, army painting competition kind of players who are competing on national levels and winning awards. And, the, you know, they would always try to be like, well, you know, if you, um, th that's really great, Frank. Have you ever tried using an ink wash? I think that would really help define a lot of the lines on your models. And he'd be like, why would I do that? My, my models look perfect as they are. They do, Frank. They do. Good, good job, man. You know, I mean, I, I suppose that really goes to show the point that art's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, Frank thought that what he was doing was was top-notch and i mean he's not wrong <laughs> technically even if it doesn't conform to what a lot of others might think of his art so good for him you know it, it, it's interesting that you, you bring up that story uh which is one of the funniest stories and i do love it it's it's one of the favorite my favorite hobby stories i've heard but um i'm always hesitant you know when we do local tournaments here we'll also have like hey throw a model in the paint competition uh, not a big deal, nothing like that. But I'm always kind of hesitant to it because if I'm putting a model into a paint competition, it's usually the something I am most proud of, you know, that I have with me of, hey, I put a lot of time into this, whatever. And there's always that chance that that judge is just going to scorch your work. And I'm, I'm always really hesitant in, in that uh, when, you know, in that situation of do... Do I want that criticism? Now, thankfully, um, I I haven't I don't do a lot of paint competitions because again, some of the guys around here, there's just no point. Like they are incredible, way better than I will ever be. And uh, but I, I did put my Archaeon model into one. We were just having a, a friendly local tournament. And they were like, you know, leave it on the table over lunchtime. We'll judge it. And I actually won. It was really cool. Won, I won a $10 gift certificate. So nice. It was, yeah, <laughs> I was really excited about it because I think you guys know I put, I mean, Archeon was the biggest model I had painted to date of, of you know, that, at that time. I did it all by brush. It took me about 50 hours of work. Um, and uh, it's, it's honestly, it's probably my favorite model in my collection. I, I had a uh, one of my buddies back in uh, the last town I lived in, and I would have a we used to do competitions, and the competition was basically bragging rights. We would set ourselves a goal, and then whoever got it done first would have to owe the other person the other person owed them dinner. 
but there were a few where we finished a project and we wanted to have some of our other buddies judge it. And I, he painted up the entire Space Hulk box set, and I painted up the entire Dreadfleet box set. And those are some, on both sides, some very challenging models. And I won that one. But the, the, the compliment I got was one of the judges said, it looked like John Blanche painted them. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, it makes sense because I stole this paint scheme from White Dwarf. But I, I, I didn't look at it and think John Blanche painted it. I thought I painted it. But that's what they saw was this, this uh, other artist's vision that I have tried to copy in a lot of other things over the years. I thought, hey, I kind of did it by accident. That's awesome. Uh, I think maybe one of these days I'll have to try something like that. I just, I haven't, um, I haven't had the, the, the drive to, I guess. So I think that'll wrap up our Fulgrim's Quest section this time around. We're going to jump into another new section and Maniple is going to lead this one up. And we're going to call this one Plundering the Vault. This is an idea we kicked around a little bit about going into some of the older games that GW has released over the years, uh, different things that struck our ha- hobby fancy. Uh, a lot of these might be specialist games, but I suppose at some point we could also look at previous editions of 40K or even maybe games that are kind of, of GW adjacent. I picked one from my library today that was something I really got heavily into when I was in grad school. This is the game Inquisitor. The Battle for the Emperor's Soul. And it was a very unique sort of game. This was during the heyday of specialist games. Stuff like Necromunda and Mordheim and Battlefield Gothic, Warmaster, Epic, Blood Bowl. All this stuff was getting decent support at GW at the time. And unfortunately, a lot of these games passed away because GW wanted to focus on its its, its big ones, on the Lord of the Rings on 40K and Warhammer. And these other ones were taken up too much design space, I think. But you can. But it's interesting that with these specialist games, there was so much room to get into the nitty-gritty and the background and kind of the dark corners of the universe that it really it was very thematic. It was a different way to play. And some of the models that were released for these various games were amazing and, and really got me much deeper into the hobby than I would have gone without. And in particular, after Inquisitor had kind of run its course, you started to see some of these models showing up in 40K. You had an Inquisition faction, and you still even have some plastic models like uh, Gregor Eisenhorn that are, are now in 40K itself, and a, and a few others as well. So I wanted to give a rundown of how this game played. First off, of uh, you guys here, did any of you actually play this game? I'm rocking my uh, old Inquisitor guy right now. <laughs> oh, brother. Yeah, Captain <laughs> Yeah, Artemis. brother Artemis, yeah. Yeah, actually, I don't know if you guys have seen Inquisitor models, Brandon Warwick. But yeah, there's the comparison size-wise. He's actually a little larger than the Forge World Primarchs. Yeah, I've, I, uh, Maple, I've played like one or two matches with you. Uh, this would have been a long time ago. Um you were a little kid, probably. Uh, I could, I could tell. I can. I'll put it in the chat. What, uh, what assignment you were at? All right. Yeah, I, I have never played. Um, this was one that actually, besides seeing that model, uh, that uh, 
that Paul was showing off there and, you know, you know, hearing about it in passing, this is actually going to be kind of my first deep dive into uh, Inquisitor at all. So let me go through a little bit of the fluff and the gameplay, and, and then I'd like to hear some of your reactions on, do you think it maybe is, is there room for a game like this in their lineup, or is it something that is, um, uh, it, it, well, or there, there, there's no place for it anymore. But yeah, work that would have been about 15 years ago. Yeah, that that was um, like your second. I think your second assignment wasn't it? Right. But um, so, I think that uh, Inquisitor was very detailed down to like what action each model would take. Yeah, now, I'll go I, through that. I right, but I was going to say that um, I think they kind of want uh, Kill Team to kind of fill that void, maybe. But I, it's not really the same thing because that you do have, um, I, yeah, I don't think like your Inquisitor is going to be the same powerhouse that he would be in Kill Team that he is in. Uh, I could do a long dissertation on Kill Team. That would be a topic for another one of these, the, the various iterations it's gone through. But, um, but yeah, I think there is a little bit of the heritage uh, from Inquisitor in that. The, the book starts off with an interesting discussion about the various factions because they're trying to build a world here where you might have inquisitorial warbands fighting each other. And there are two types of factions, the Puritans and the Radicals. And the Puritans in the main book, they list three. First, there's the Thorians, named after Sebastian Thor, who overthrew Goge Vandyer during the Reign of Blood, I think. And the Thorians believe that the Emperor's divine will resided in Sebastian Thor, and strengthen him to accomplish this great task, to save the the empire, the the Imperium. So they believe the Emperor's divine will still manifests itself in other individuals, and they're hoping, because they see his will not actually existing on the Golden Throne, but in his agents out in the Imperium. What they're trying to do then is build the perfect vessel for the Emperor's spirit, so he can leave the Golden Throne forever and, 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 and impart itself into a new vessel and be reborn. So that's the Thorian's goal. Then you have this group called the Monodominance, and they are those who want to destroy all of the Emperor's enemies. They have no tolerance for any fooling around, no Xenos and heretics or anyone else. They're the most militant of the orders. And then you have the Amalthians. The Amalthians are the ones who pledge allegiance to the status quo, that which is happening now. So they are going to support all of the institutions that are present there in the Imperium and try to strengthen them, not changing anything, not making anything different, but just helping the status quo. So those are your three Puritan factions. Then they detail three radical factions. The Xanthites are those who use warp technology. They believe that chaos is simply a tool that you can use. And you can even use chaos against itself. And this would be somebody who might use a demon sword to strike down a bunch of chaos warriors or use a demon host in order to to, to, to win a battle. So that's what the Xanthites do. Then you have the recongregators. And they believe that the Imperium is completely corrupt. And the way you fix it is by destabilizing sections of it and then replacing it with something more pure. So you might go in and cause a civil war to happen on a planet to get rid of all the chaff and then bring in new leadership and better institutions that would run the place better. 
And then finally, you have the Istvanians. This is clever because we wrote 30K podcast, kind of. The Istvanians believe that during the Horus Heresy, humanity was tested to its utmost. But this is where it became strongest. With the foundation of all these new imperial institutions and the purifying of the, of the Space Marine Legions. So they seek to cause instability, chaos, and war in order to test humanity and bring forth its best. So do any of those factions sound interesting to you guys? I like the monodominance, and I kind of like the Istvanians. Yeah, I like the I, I like the Istvanians there. I think uh, I think that there's something to be said about kind of that uh, that struggle brings forth the best, mm-hmm. and and leaves behind the worst. So I I think I think I'd go Istvanians there. I guess we're going unanimous on it because I really like the Istvanians too. <laughs> It's interesting. I think if we were going to play a game of this, I would just play some Amalthians because that's the hard counter to that. Is you just keep the status quo going and just main, just be the company man. You know, just keep things going as they are. So I didn't realize in the the first Eisenhorn book, Xenos, he talks like they're they're in some trial for him. He talks about the different um, the different inquisitorial factions. I didn't realize how in depth that Dan Abnett was on that. So that's that's really interesting. Um, a lot of this is actually from Gav Thorpe. Uh, Gav Thorpe uh, was, I think, the main author on this book. Now, when we get into, then we get into some interesting gameplay aspects of this. And this is, I think, where the game got hurt, was that it didn't have any points values for anything. You were just to create a warband and then try to make it kind of even with your opponent through a kind of gentleman's understanding and maybe through the use of a game master or a narrator. But the problem was that people were showing up at, at uh, GW stores rocking five Space Marines and killing everybody on the, on the board. So it was hard to get any kind of an even sort of matchup. But they say uh, you're supposed to just kind of get along with your opponent and figure out what works best. Uh, the models are 54 millimeter, so roughly twice what a standard uh, Imperial Guardsman would be, uh, which is typically 26, 26 millimeter. Then you would have uh, every one inch equals one yard. So if you're one inch apart, uh, two inches apart, that would be like like six feet or or two meters. Now, you do have a profile like in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And your characters have weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, initiative, willpower, sagacity, nerve, and leadership. And so these are, the way you make your character is you roll for them. So for instance, if you're going to play a character who is an Inquisitor, there are three different ranks for your Inquisitor that you can roll up. And they have Acolyte, Inquisitor, and Lord. So the Lord, if he's when he calculates his weapon skill, he's going to be rolling 4d10 plus 75. So his average score is going to be like a 95. Okay, so these are characters that are starting at the tip top of the percentile, and same is true with most of his character, his other character characteristics are going to be in the seventy to the ninety range. If you're playing somebody who's like um, a mutant, let's say, let me grab that mutant character for his we- weapon skill, he's only going to be adding fifty plus three d ten, so his average score might be only sixty five. Still pretty high if you're thinking about this in percentile terms, but it's it's somewhat random, or you can just take the 
the, the, the standard line that they give for each of these characters. So they'll give you a little page to look at in the book and tell you what your stats are. So then you would just pick anywhere from three to five characters, build them, and give them equipment. And the, they do have a very extensive armory in the book that goes through and details everything from LAS weapons to projectile weapons, melted weapons, throwing weapons, uh, Xenos weapons, uh, chain swords, everything that's in GW lore is, is in here. But again, there's no points values on it. So you could say, well, my character is going to have two power cloths. Okay. And he's going to be super awesome. And then I show up with my guy with a LAS pistol and a, and a combat blade that it's, that there's no way to, dis, to distinguish who, what's the relative power is. But the way that you play the game is each character has a speed value. Your speed value dictates the order of play. So everybody who's at like speed seven goes first, then it goes six, five, four, three, two, one. Depending on your speed value, you're going to have that many dice to roll to see what actions you get. So first you have to announce what you're going to do. And you can announce up to six things. You'll say, I'm going to draw my pistol, aim, fire. I'm going to run around the corner, aim, fire at the next guy. So you try to get like three things or six things. Then you roll your dice equal to your speed value. And for every four plus you get, you get to actually do one of those things in that order. So is so say you only get to do four of them, you say, okay, I'm going to draw, aim, fire, run. And that's your four. Then it goes down to the next speed value. It goes down to like the five. And then that person does theirs. And you keep going back and forth until everybody has got their actions. Then you go back up to the top again. What Gav Thorpe said in the back of the book was this was actually based on an old gunfighter game that was like played in the Wild West where you had these characters who were rolling D6s to determine what they were going to do. It was called the, um, I guess this was Jervis Johnson. Sorry. So Jervis Johnson was writing about how he used to play these old Western games that had this mechanic. What are your thoughts on a mechanic like that? I can see how it would get incredibly frustrating because it's like, I'm going to run, aim, shoot. And then if you flub, like it, 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 could be one of those game-changing moments. If you flub your first two rolls and you're like, I can just shoot or I can just run, like it, it really hamstrings a turn. I can see why that would get frustrating right away. The whole no points values would be, doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like a lot of oversight. I think um, it sounds to me, and anytime that I hear no points values, the first thing that that tells me is I'm not playing this in a store I'm playing this with my, only my friends. Um, and we're going to talk about the game before we get. And I right. definitely think there's a place for those games. Um, I, I really strongly feel that. Um, but I, it's it's interesting to me. Um, I don't know that I would love it. Like it's a 50-50 shot on a regular die, which for those of you who know me, a four up is actually a one third shot for me at best. Um so I, I might feel more comfortable if maybe it was like a three up um, that you can do or or even uh, even maybe bring the speed values down, but make it a two up. So you're usually going to get what you need. But when you don't, it's actually devastating. So that that that's kind of my thought on it. Have you thought about getting better dice? Uh, that, that only works in theory, Eric. Um, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. 
Your now, frown tells me all I need to know. Another common criticism of the game was how ranged shooting works. So remember how I said that the Inquisitor might have a ballistic skill as high as 90. You think, oh, that's amazing. I'm going to, because you roll a percentage, a percentage dice, and that's if you get a 90 or less, you hit. But the problem is that all of the guns have a range type to them. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, or J. Each of those corresponded to a table with range modifiers. And the range modifiers could be as much as negative 140. So every time you played, you'd have to reference this chart to see what your what letter your gun was, and then how far away the enemy was, and then apply the range modifier to your ballistic skill. And there were other modifiers for how, how fast you had just moved, like what your last action was. If you spent any turns aiming, is the weapon rested? Is it semi-auto? Is your target large, small, or medium? Are you offhand, or are you shooting two weapons? And is the character's strength less than half the weight of the weapon? So these are the sorts of calculations you had to do with every shot that started to get a little bit tiresome. I see, uh, Paul, you're nodding your head. What did you think about that? <laughs> it just reminds me of back in those days, playing D&D and having to calculate Thaco. Thaco. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that period of gaming was definitely defined by its crunch, which at the time we all thought was great. Yeah, there's there's a level of crunch I enjoy. Uh, that sounds like too much crunch to me. If I'm having to figure out is my character strong enough to hold the pistol that I brought for them, you lost me there. You can um, hold it, but it's telling you if you have a negative 10% on your shot. Yeah, you see, you lost. You still lost me. I'm surprised that recoil is not a factor. It's like, are you strong enough to not have your wrist broken when you fire this bolt pistol? That would be hilarious. And then the same is true with the melee chart. So with the melee chart, you're also looking at um, each melee weapon had a reach value, and if the reach value was different, that would change your to hit roll. Did you charge or not? Is the defender prone? Attacker on high ground, size of target, offhand two weapon, and then you also had a whole table for parrying. If you wanted to parry, there's a whole table for that. So it's a sort of thing where other games like this, the, the closest analog I could think would be something like uh, Malifaux First Edition, where you only had four or five models, but each of them had an amazing amount of crunch on it that you had to figure out and know your model forwards and backwards how it was going to act on the on the table before you ever got there and a lot of stuff to remember because then you would get into all the different kinds of equipment because you had tons of different kinds of grenades armor psychic powers bionic implants combat stims hallucinogens cyber creatures cyber skulls mastiffs and on and on and on so you could get an incredible amount of detail on your character if, if you wanted to play that way I really like that aspect of it. Like, I like being able to fine tune every detail of what my warband is kitted out with. That's awesome to me. Um, Kill Team does a little bit of that, but it's really only like, okay, does this guy have a bolt gun and an auspex or a uh, plasma gun and a um, uh, uh, comms unit? I 
that that gets a little dull, but the the amount of detail of what kind of war gear you could kit your guys out with was really neat to me. And some of the old artwork from that was so cool too. Yeah, I um, when it comes to skirmish games, which I think Warwick, you can vouch for the fact that I've never been a big skirmish game guy, um, but I have been coming around on them recently. And what I found is all of this, like I want all of that extra crunch. Uh, I love, I, I actually love the really, really crunchiness outside of the game. If I can, because when, when I actually sit down to play the game, I want a 20 minute game that's fast and fun. And then I can go take three hours after I go home and screw around with my character, mess with their war gear, think about all of that stuff. I love that stuff. But when I'm actually playing the game, if we got five models on the board and this game is taking an hour, something's wrong here. So that's where games like the modern version of Kill Team have tried to simplify that aspect somewhat. I really go back to the first edition of Kill Team where they had a, a way of playing where you had your small war band that was, that was um, you know, had character names and kitted out with all the different stuff. Then the other player was playing these mobs. You had like these little thug squads. I can't remember what they called them. And you'd have a, a sergeant who could be a boss, but you'd have these just these little groups of, of bad guys walking around the table that would move randomly with a scatter dice. And then your band of heroes was trying to scoot in between them without raising the alarm. I think, Brandon, you would have loved that version of it. Did you guys ever remember playing that, as I describe it? No, and I, I would say like the, the current iterations of Kill Team, one, it feels like it, the edition flips every 10 seconds. Um, they've got a new box set out with a new season or whatever, which is annoying to me. Um, I, I, I've n- I'm not a fan of games as a service when video games do it, and they're better at it. Um, but don't do that on my tabletop games. Anyway, um, but they, they've, they've hit the, the whole games are fast and fun aspect of it. But then when it's done, I put the models back in the case and I don't think about them until I'm playing the next game. Like that's, that's just kind of what it is. There's nothing, there's none of that outside stuff. And Paul, I wanted to ask you about this since I know you're a big Mordheim guy. Isn't that kind of how Mordheim was though? Is like the games were fairly quick, but you had a lot of richness outside of the actual gameplay. Yeah. So the big thing with Mordheim is all the base rules are the exact same as fantasy battles. It's just you're using individual models instead of squads. So like attacks and armor saves and all of that are all the exact same. Um, The crunch came from being able to kit every guy differently. And you would have like, you know, death saves and injury saves to make after games. And there was a lot of that stuff. Um, So that's where you got most of your crunch. But the actual game itself, I think a standard game... With a starter warband, usually ran us 20 to 30 minutes, an hour if it was like a new player who didn't know what they were doing, but yeah. Yeah, usually by by 30 minute mark, you're like, I need to break, I need to get out of here because I'm going to die. I mean, my watch stone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of how it is. I'm in a battle companies league, which is the Middle Earth skirmish game, but it's, it's another one that it's it doesn't quite lean as much as I'm ta- as these games that we're talking about inquisitor Mordheim. It doesn't lean into that outside of the battle, but it does have that a little bit. Um, 
more so than I would say like Kill Team or uh, the biggest defender here to me is Warcry. Warcry is a ocean that's about a foot deep, and that's my problem with it. Um, so that's yeah. uh, I think with Warcry though, it was never really designed to be that sort of like deep crunchy narrative game it is just a small it's almost board gamey in how much of a skirmish game it is yeah it's that it felt like it felt like the original intent was that and then people threw a fit over their uh their regular sigmar models not being usable and they're like we're gonna throw them all in there and it just kind of ruined the entire game from the start so one of the things that i'll comment on is like what kind of what you were getting at before was the the between battle mindset that whenever I played a game of inquisitor or was getting ready for one, I would not just make up my character sheet, but I would also make, write the backstory. And then I would write the reason why we're fighting. And then I would go write a fiction story about, about one of the characters. I was so interested in these, these court little corners of the, of the Imperium that I wanted to get more into it. And like with Mordheim, after you finished a game, you'd be thinking, okay, I've got to go model these injuries. I've got to figure out a new guy to bring in. Can I find another dog for my witch hunters? And and you're thinking, okay, can I, I've got just fifteen, you know, crowns to spend. What can I get for that? Is it is it the spear and the dagger, or do I get the sword and the shield? And so you'd be having all these 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 um, conversations internally about what's going to happen next. And with Inquisitor, it was more about the story. With Mordheim, it was always more about the deficiency of the models and how I'm going to make those guys look next time. I love that aspect of these games. I remember when I, I was playing Mordheim with you and like a narrative campaign and I was absolutely stoked when I got like a Warplock engineer with a pair of Warplock pistols. And I was like, this guy's going to be awesome. And in the very next match, he got shot in the eye. And so he was like in a negative ballistic skill, and I was so yeah. pissed that my yeah. awesome model is now freaking worthless. So I, I'm, like, I'm not going to pay this guy anymore. Got to find another one now. Oh yeah, yeah. I still I remember. Yeah, there's ton, tons of stuff like that. Like a guy, I get a horse for a dude with barded armor, and he gets pushed an inch off a ledge and fails his initiative test, and they both died. <laughs> yeah. It's just stuff like that, but that's part of the fun. Yeah, I don't, I, I kind of, sorry, I let us off on a tangent here. I don't want to talk about Mordheim too much because that's going to be another Plundering the Vault segment here. But I, the point that I'm making with, with these is that, and it sounds like Inquisitor's kind of the same thing, is it's, the, the games might not, what I'm concerned about is that the games are, if the game is too complex, um, all of that stuff outside of the game that's just going to start feeling like tedium um, at that point, And I'm not going to want to do it. And that's to me, that's also the best part of these games. So if I don't want to do the best part of the game because of the gameplay itself, that that's would be my main issue with it. Yeah. So towards the, the tail end of this. So I was, I was on the, the inquisitor Yahoo group and I collected all my exterminatus magazines if you can find these on eBay, they're great little resources for um, scenario ideas and the, all the different the, the models that were released. They had uh, aliens. They had Cal Jericho and Chrono Gladiators. They had um, Chaos uh, Magi. 
they had Eldar, they had Gene Steelers, which I have one of those. They had a bunch of other, you know, Chaos Boys, Sisters of Battle. Uh, they had people, they had, uh, Imperial Navigators and Imperial Bosons. They had, this, uh, oh, these uh, Tau Boys. And they even had, like, some criminals and, like, fight, you know, fighting in the, the criminal underworld. And uh, fun little stuff there. Then what happened is GW went to a Fanatic magazine, which I have my Fanatic magazine collection here. And Fanatic is where they, episode, uh, let's see, this is one through 10. This is where they uh, put together all of the information for all of, the, all of their specialist games. So I, I, I would go through my Inquisitor, or look for my Inquisitor um, rules here. And like, for instance, this one had, uh, let's see, where's this at? Uh, converting the masses. So they'd have a whole thing on uh, making conversions for your models. And the pr thing was, I wish that I just bought two of everything because I converted so much of my stuff. I don't have good, clean versions of a lot of the models that they released. So I've been on an eBay quest to go back and try to get some of those and fill up my collection. Wasn't there a Inquisitor scale Zote? Don't you have one of those? I don't remember if they did a Zote or not. I don't think so. So I um, we're we're getting close to probably needing to wrap up for time here. So. Well, let me just close but, up with, with uh, well, what I, was, was... I had a question for you. Um, okay. So do you, do your close up, but also here's my question for you. I've heard about Inquisitor now. It sounds interesting to me. Maybe it sounds interesting to some of our listeners. Obviously, it's not in print anymore, so it's going to be difficult to find. What do you recommend? How could someone still try to get into it in today? You know today so what what happened at the tail end of the game was that people were moving towards 28 millimeter that they said the 54 millimeter models are too expensive and they're out of print so guys were going through and doing a 28 millimeter version of it that looked a lot more like mordheim much simpler rule set and it was all going online at that time the last place i saw where this is really happening in a really cool way was on a blog called iron sleet iron sleet those guys did a, a campaign, kind of a Thorian-based campaign, where people would make their Blanche-esque-style Inquisitor warbands and fight each other at these various events, I think in Great Britain. And if you get to, get to their blog, they have some amazing uh, models there, and I think that's where the rules, current rule set is, is being held, or at least there would be a link to it there. And if you really did want to do the 54 millimeter, it's going to be 3D printing. Because the 3D printers are going to start, I think there's... More 54 millimeter stuff coming out, and the Inquisitor rulebook, and I think it's still be found on eBay or used at a you know, uh, here and there. But is it worth playing the original game? I I don't know if I could recommend the original game, but what it turned into, I could recommend. So do you think that? So do you think that there's like a good modern counterpart to it, or should people just uh, try to find like um, downloads for the for the older rule set? The closest. I mean, Necromunda kinda. We'll go in a different tangent with Necromunda, but no, I think it's probably um, Kill Team a little bit. But I'd say look online and see what you can find there to get that that really interesting RPG experience. That's where you're going to find it. All right. Well, I guess I will uh, wrap us up here then. And uh, Manipul, thank you for taking us through. You know, I know it's it's so fun because you you've been in this hobby for such a long time. I get to see things that. 
I honestly probably would never have the opportunity to see um, like Inquisitor um, and, and things like that. And so I always appreciate when you, when you break out some of the old classic stuff, it's, it's a good time. Um, but uh, we'll go ahead and wrap things up here. Thanks everybody for, for tuning in and listening. Uh, we have a lot of fun with these hobby roundtables. We just get to sit here and kind of chat um, a little, you know, more off the cuff than we usually are, but we're going to be here back here in, in a couple of weeks um, with uh, the next, next book that uh, in the heresy series, it'll just be, I believe it will just be Warwick and I for that episode, uh, but that's descent of angels uh, where we're taking a look at the uh, kind of the origins of the first Legion, uh, the dark angels. And then after that, uh, you know, right before Christmas, we'll be having a uh, another hobby roundtable where we'll be opening our secret Santa gifts on the podcast and uh, be able to to take a look at those. We'll we'll share we'll have to share out some pictures of them on Twitter, which uh, which you could follow us on uh, at LegionCast18. Uh, of course, you can email us as well, LegionCast18 at gmail.com. We will read the read the emails if uh, if you guys send them in um and we're uh, we're always happy to hear hear back from you guys listening to the show so uh thank you paul manipul warwick thanks for everybody for joining um and we'll see you guys on the next episode of legion cast cheers bye thanks for having us on